This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Sky Blues Extra. Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Sky Blues Extra podcast with me, David Moore, Andrew Greasley, and we have another very special guest, Terry Gibson. Born in Walthamstow, London, he started his career at Tottenham before making the switch to Coventry City in 1983. Terry went on to make over 100 appearances and scoring 50 goals in that time, including a fantastic hat-trick in the famous 4-0 win over Liverpool at Highfield Road. Let's have a quick listen back to that memorable game now. Coventry start the match six points behind Liverpool. The incentive, obviously, from their point of view, to reduce that gap to three. And Bennett may go again. And Gibson off the post and in by little Terry Gibson. 2-0 to Coventry. And Bamber is forward. And Gibson shot. And number three. Grovelaar stands and wonders what's happened here. And what has happened is that Liverpool are three goals down. And Gibson has beaten Neil. Is it on here for number four? Gin and Bamba to his right. And Gibson has completed a hat-trick. What a marvellous day. For Terry Gibson and for the supporters. Terry, firstly, thank you for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you this evening. And I'm sure the thousands of Sky Blues Extra listeners out there are looking forward to listening to your Sky Blues story. No, thank you for having me on. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk about a, a, a period of, of fondness in my football career. Um, I was welcomed by the Coventry City supporters from day one and had a fantastic relationship uh, for, with the, for the two and a half seasons. I was at the club. Um, it had its moments. It up, had its ups and ups and downs, but we we all survived as Coventry used to do every season in the top flight there. 
Yeah, and you mentioned there just about sort of the ups and downs. And like I say, I already spoke about our listeners. I'm sure we're as much as us, we're really looking forward to hearing them stories as we go on. I want to kick off um, and start off way back as a teenager, actually, Terry. Growing up in London uh, and you joined Tottenham, how did that come about? And, and what were you doing prior to signing for Spurs? Well, I was, I was one of those lucky ones that I had a choice of clubs that I could pick from to, to sign for. I'd played for my school, for my district team, for the county, which was Essex, played for London boys, England school boys. So there was, I, I had a, a lot of clubs that wanted me to sign schoolboy forms, which was the, the time you was allowed to register with a professional club. And that was at the age of 14. Around that time, I, I actually spent school holidays playing for Anderlecht in Belgium. So I used to go out there and in the school holidays and play in various tournaments with them against the likes of Bayern Munich, Juventus, Paris Saint-Germain. It was it was all the big clubs. It was uh, it was quite a usual thing to be done in, in on the continent as opposed to in England. We we never had those tournaments to to enjoy. Um, but Tottenham was where I'd been training since I was about thirteen, and I was a Tottenham supporter. And, and I actually went to Anderlecht for those school holidays with Tottenham's blessing because they knew that other clubs in London wanted to sign me, but I'd, I'd turned those down. They knew that I, Manchester United wanted to, to sign me. I'd, I'd turned those down. So they was pretty confident that I was going to stay and, and sign schoolboy forms for Spurs, which was always going to be the case. But it was a great experience going to, to you know, spend some time in Belgium, seeing how football was, you know, for young players how it was treated over there. Um, but from 14, I signed for Spurs and I missed the, pretty much my last year at school because Tottenham at that time only had three first-year apprentices. So I was 15 coming up for 16. And again, I was you know going to training Tuesday and Thursday at Tottenham Hotspur and then on school holidays training there. And it just sort of continued that because they only had three apprentices and I was so keen to, to join them as a 16-year-old apprentice that for my last year at school, I pretty much didn't go, which caused a lot of problems regarding exams. The biggest issue with the school, though, was me not playing for the school team. Um, yeah, so it, it, it was we came to an agreement where I sort of did a couple of days at school when we had school matches and I pretty much did PE all day. Um, I look back now, it was such a risk. I don't know how my parents allowed me to do it, encouraged me to do it. I left school with no qualifications. I didn't even take the exams. Um, I'm not saying I was a bright lad, but I, you know, I wasn't the, the worst in the year. Um, so I, I did miss out on some exams. Fortunately enough, I made a career in football, so I didn't have to fall back on the, the lack of qualifications. So. I was just going to say that actually, Terry. So, it, out of interest and an early one, really. So, had you have not um, sort of not succeeded, but had you have not followed that that path in football and, and made that, is there anything that you perhaps would have gone back to? Do you think there's anything at the time you thought, if if it doesn't work out, or was it just sort of head down? This has to work because I've now had the last <laughs> yeah. year off school, and they might not accept me back if I'm too old to play in the school team. Yep, no. It, back then, it was sixth form. If you stayed on at school, you went into the sixth form, which was probably about a dozen people from each year. It, it wasn't the done thing. So I guess like most of my mates, I would have gone and learned a trade of some sort, you know, bricklaying, electrician, something along those lines. That was what we were doing, you know, back in the, I'm trying to think, late 70s, early 80s. 
So that's, you know, for me, it was football or, or that. And, and luckily enough, I, I managed to, to salvage a career, kind of living, still doing it now. So it's, I've got away with it, to be honest. <laughs> you spent some time overseas um, at a young age in Sweden. What was it like playing there? Well, it was interesting because I, it was something that Spurs did with players that were local. So we had a number of players that came down from Scotland, young players um, from Sunderland, uh, from the northeast, and they kind of felt that the players that were born in London and were local and were going home every day felt that the club felt we needed to be more independent. So okay. it would do us good to go and live away from our parents, to go and do something different in a different country. It was it was mostly it was over the summer, so. I went the year that Spurs beat Manchester City in a replay in the FA Cup final. Yeah, I remember um, that, yeah. And, yeah. and I was watching that in Sweden. By that time, I'd already played in the first team as well. So it was it was just an opportunity to, to play summer football and to experience something different in another country. I was in the second division in Sweden. I was based in Gothenburg. My club was called Guys, which was G-A-I-S. And we shared a stadium with IFK Gothenburg. They were the ones that got the big crowds. They were winning yeah. European competitions when I, we were sharing a stadium with them. And Sven Goran Eriksson was the manager. Um, yeah. Glenn, wow. Glenn, Glenn Hussein was the centre-back. Who went Liverpool, to play for Liverpool. Liverpool, yeah. yeah, I remember they, that, yeah. they won a European competition. I think it was the UEFA Cup or the Cup Winners' Cup. The whole team got ripped apart. They went to Portugal, to Italy. Um, Sven left the club as, as well. So that was a great playing was great, but watching them play on a regular basis. So when they were at home and I could go and watch them, it was just around the corner, and they they were a fine team at the time. So it was it was a really good experience. I was desperate to get back to Spurs though because it had worked in the past for players. Gary Brook had been to the same club the year before me. He came back and went into the first team at Spurs. I think Paul Miller went to a club in Norway. He did the same when he came back from his. He's tripped to Norway and there's six months out there. He went into the first team at Spurs. So I was, I was kind of hoping I was going to get the, the same opportunity. And Terry, Bobby Gold obviously signed you uh, for £100,000, I think. Tell us about transfers sort of back in that day. And I'd imagine they're a little bit different to the sort of coverage <laughs> that Sky Sports deadline day give to the transfer market now. Well, it was 70000 I was out of contract. And back then you you didn't have the option of once your contract was finished, you could, you know, you were free to leave and go to another club. If a club came in with an offer that wasn't suitable, then it, it would go to a tribunal um, and they decided the fee. But by and large, a lot of players spent months, half of the next season, still at the same club. So if Coventry hadn't come in for me, I would have stayed at Spurs on my old contract um, until someone came in and made a, a, some sort of offer. So it was it was ridiculous when you think back that your contract was up. I couldn't agree terms with, with, with Tottenham. I played the about the last twenty matches of the season in the first team, and I was offered a one year deal with a fifty pound a week rise. And I wanted longer. Wanted it, I, actually that's all it was. I wanted longer. It wasn't so much the money. I wanted a longer. Yeah, yeah, longer term. I just got married. Um, I did get married young at the 19, but on the back of 21st team games on the trot, playing in the first team, scoring goals, I thought I was going to be offered. I was actually told some time before the end of the season, don't worry, you're going to be offered a new deal. 
when it happened, it, it was a letter in the post. I had to tick a box to say yes or no and send it back to the manager, Keith Birkinshaw, and that was it. And from then on, I ticked no um, and wanted to go somewhere where I was going to get longer and maybe a, a better opportunity of being a first-team regular player. Um, a little bit different to sort of Peter Owen Wingy, who sort of drove his way around the, the country. You just tick a box and, and that was it, away you go. Yeah. And then when I signed for Coventry, I didn't even tell my wife. I, <laughs> Sometimes she, the best. She, yeah, she found out on the London news at six o'clock that day um, that I'd signed for Coventry for the next three years. And she was going to be packing up the next morning and moving all the stuff up into a hotel in, in, in Coventry. Because I only told her I was going out for a chat. Um, but the circumstances were that when I got there, it was I had 15 minutes to make a, a decision and I decided to sign for Coventry, um, sign for Bobby Gould. And then by the time I drove home, she found out. Um, so, it, it, the, you know, those the transfers, there was no transfer news on Sky. It was it, it was quite, you know, bizarre back then that, you know, that's how it all, all, all occurred. People can't imagine that. You know, it was a, a relatively small fee. I was surprised, as you said. As I said, I played um, twenty odd games, scored eight goals, I think, in those twenty games. I was nineteen years old, and you know, I was surprised that I didn't get longer as a, a contract offer from Spurs. But I, I was thrilled when it came out of the blue. The, the story is actually it's quite an interesting one. I played a preseason game for Spurs um, for the reserves, and we played at a team called Lose. L-E-W-E-S, which is down on the south coast. Yeah, near Brighton sort of way, isn't it? Yep, it's our first, our reserve team against their first team. We won, I think it was 6-4, and I scored five. And the manager of Lewis was Bobby's brother, Trevor Gould. And he told Bobby what I'd done that day. And on Monday morning when I went into training, the manager and the assistant manager called me over and said that a club of two clubs had made offers that they had accepted. One was Coventry and one was a club in Belgium. And which one did I want to speak to? So I literally that day drove up to Coventry and signed within, as I say, I had 15 minutes. Because when I got there, there was only five players training and it was a a week before the season started. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So I knew I I had a chance of getting a game, basically. (laughs) And and Bob said to me, I I, I can name the players. There was... There was a mass exodus that summer of players from Coventry. Dave Sexton left. A lot of those players were out of contract. They all went off to different clubs. Oh. And when I got to Coventry on that Monday, we're playing on the following Saturday against Watford. Um, I got there, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head the players that would have been there would have been Brian Roberts, um, Steve Hunt, yeah. Jerry Daly, and the rest were youngsters. Right. You know, the likes of Ian Butterworth. Yeah, it was Peter Holmans. Chuck was one of those. Martin Singleton. There wasn't a goalkeeper, <laughs> and and Bob. I went in to see Bob in his office after he finished training, and he said, "That's all we've got. We're we're scrambling around trying to get eleven for the weekend. And if you don't sign today, I've got to go and buy another striker from from someone else. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else I've missed out of that list. I don't think there was Steve Jacobs." was a central central defender. Mm, So it was literally five senior players and Bob was scrambling around the likes of Gary Thompson had left, Mark Haightley, Danny Thomas, Gary Gillespie, Les Seeley, who's my cousin. Um, They'd all all left it en masse. So it was, 
it was it was a panic for Bob to try and get a team together for the the first game of the season. What so? What was Bobby Gould like, uh, Terry, as a manager? Well, uh, uh, I mean, it's it's a strange one because as I've got older, I've become aware of where he was coming from. Uh, we had our ups and downs. We we had big fallouts, mm. but he bought me twice. He bought me again for Wimbledon. He did. Um, and it was a volatile relationship, if I'm being honest. And really? I put it down to the fact that he was a centre-forward, probably similar to me in terms of style of play. He was aggressive, hard-working. I think I was quicker than Bob, if I'm being honest. Definitely. Um, <laughs> and and, he, and he, he used to drag me around that training ground at Brighton and Dunsmore from Monday to Friday, literally physically, dragged me around, showing me which positions to go in. Um, whatever I did at Coventry, didn't appear to satisfy him, so he was a he was he was tough on me. But I think it was because he saw some of himself in me. And when you're 19 and 20 and, and 21, as I was at the time, you, you don't you you, you you probably don't appreciate what he's trying to do as much as you should. So mm. I kind of resented being you know thrown dragged around and thrown around the training ground, and never you know whatever you did, you you didn't think you know was enough to satisfy him, but. The, he, he came and got me again, and you know, to this day, I'm I'm full of gratitude, full of respect. I think that the, the world of Gordie, I think he's a you know someone that played a massive part in my career that had the the, the balls to, to to sign me twice. So, as I say, he was tough. We fell out a number of times again at Wimbledon. It was it was the same there. I saw a slightly different side to to Bobby Gould at Wimbledon because of. I think when I went to Coventry, it was – sorry if I'm rambling on. No, no, carry on. <laughs> Not it's, it's brilliant. When I went to Coventry, it was it was new for me to call the manager boss or gaffer. Hmm. So at Spurs, everybody called the manager Keith. He was the only manager I'd had before. But it was, it was kind of like a Midlands Northern thing where the manager was called gaffer or boss. In London, the clubs called their players, their managers – by their names. Mm-hmm. So when I went up to, to Coventry and speaking to Bob, he used to say, it's Gaffer. And he used to like, yeah, he used to, you know, do the eyebrow movement that we've all seen. <laughs> and he'd go, it's Gaffer. Uh, not Bob, not Bob. So I apologise. And then, so I, you know, there was the, I got used to it and called him Boss or, or Gaffer. And then when I went to Wimbledon, I called him Boss and Gaffer and everyone took the piss because they all called him Bob. Bob. <laughs> Goldie or eyebrows, and and it and the Morocco mole was another nickname. So this, I'm looking at him, and I'm, I'm desperate to call him Bob Goldie Morocco mole eyebrows because he was a player at Wimbledon at, right at the end of his career. There was a friendship with Dave Bassett. He went there and spent a little spell on loan at Wimbledon, and some of the players he played with, he was now manager of. Right, so yeah. he couldn't go into Alan Cork, Dave Besson, and one or two of the others and say, you've got to call me gaffer or boss. They were just <laughs> not having it. So it was those little things. But I, I think the, the world of Bob, I still keep in touch with him on, on Twitter. Um, and he's, you know, he, he played a huge part in my career. He, he, he was, I can't believe he was so young when I was manager of Coventry. He seemed yeah. old to me at the time. Because um, everyone seems old when you're, you're 20 and someone's, yeah. you know, grey hair and they don't, mm. you know, they, they seem ancient. Um, but he was, he was a young manager, and you know, he was, he was learning. He, he wanted to emulate Brian Clough, so stuff was, the, you know, life was never dull with Bob. There was always something happening that he, he, would, he could surprise you with. 
And as you mentioned, he spent a lot of time with you on the on the training ground and pulling you around here, there and everywhere. And in just three seasons, you scored an absolute hatful of goals for the Sky Blues. What do you think, you know, why do you think you were so prolific during that time? Well, I think there's, there's three reasons. I, I, I knew he was going to ask this question. I think one, I, I was playing on a regular basis and I had a point to prove to Spurs. I wanted to, you know, prove to them they shouldn't have let me go and, and they should have kept done more to keep me. And 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 two, I had a manager that, that believed in me and had confidence in me so that when I played a game and I missed a goal, I didn't look around at the bench thinking, I'm going to be taken off. Am I going to be playing next week? Of course. When I missed a chance, I thought well, the next one I'll take, I'll get, I'll, you know, I'll take that one. So you had that sort of security of a manager trusting you and believing you, despite the fact he was always moaning at me. Um, and, and I think the other one is the players that, that I played alongside. You know, I look at the likes of Dave Bennett in particular. Um, yeah. was a, a constant source of supply for me to get on the end of crosses. And and sometimes in football, you know, things just click. It clicks with from day one with him, with Mickey Jin, um, the various strike partners I had at Coventry, whether it was Dave Bambas, Sue Regis, Bob Latchford. Um, Mick Ferguson came in and, and it, it was just, you know, Bob liked that little and large partnership up front. He wanted the, the ball played it forward quickly, that he wanted quick crosses in from the wingers. And and Dave Bennett, you know, was always making goals for me. So it was a mixture of all those things. And I, as I learned, as I got older and changed clubs, you don't, it, you know, things don't necessarily fall into place as they should. But at Coventry, all those, you know, those three elements did playing on a regular basis, a manager that believed in me and then and having the right players around you, that you know, great quality that kept providing me with chances. And thankfully, I took them. The more you scored, did you feel that the pressure was off uh, sort of even more? Whereas sometimes when you go a period or a spell without it, it can start to sort of, you know, get way heavy on, on one's back. Yeah, I, I must be honest. Uh, there was one the, the first season where we we started off like house on fire from day one, from that first game at Watford to Christmas, and then we had a really poor period and we struggled. And it was my first full season in the league. I think Bob has admitted since that he was knackered as well by the end of the season, and and we struggled for results. You know, I, I wasn't getting the goals. We weren't winning games. We managed to survive in the the last game of the season. I felt the pressure then. That was the first time in my career I'd felt any pressure from, in terms of it was me, it was up to me to score goals. And, you know, I was 20 years old and, you know, if I didn't score, we wouldn't win games, we wouldn't pick up points. Um, So by the end of that season, it was, you know, it was stressful. But as I said, we always somehow found a way to survive one way or the other. I mean, that was a close call. We we drew with Norwich, I think, or beat Norwich on the, the last day. They hit the, post in the the last minute of the game we held on to get the points we needed the following season we had to win the last three which was a whole new the whole different story um and it was it was that was life at Coventry you know it, was, it still seems that it didn't well I mean we've had periods uh sort of under Gordon Strachan where it didn't change it was still you know still like that every looking behind you rather than in front of you but like you say, terrific performances and, and, and like you say, some really, really key goals and, and vital goals towards that sort of end of the end of the season. Yeah, I look back with, with so much pride of, of what, you know, I achieved at Coventry on an individual level. I look back with a lot of pleasure with the, the relationship with the fans, the relationship with my teammates. I you know, got 19 in my first season, 19 in the second, 14 in, by January in the, in the third season before I went off to United and 
and you know to 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 do that consistently well for two and a half seasons it was you know i really enjoyed myself in, in terms of it as an individual it was the place i enjoyed football most you know i was playing week in week out if i was fit and well i was in the team um i felt that security i had confidence um and as i said i was surrounded by good players so it was, you know, the the size of the club, the quality of the, the club as well. I mean, we had a fantastic training ground. We had a fantastic ground with the electronic scoreboard. We had underground heating. The club had a thriving youth system as well, which had been providing players, not only while I was there, but certainly before, which is, you know, the players I mentioned earlier, Mark Hately, Tommy English, David Barnes, I played in the England youth team with. Um, Gary Gillespie as well, Terry. Yeah, quality, Gary wasn't he? Exactly, and and there was there was so much youth coming through. As I said, Leslie was married to my my cousin. Yeah, um, used to play for my dad's Sunday morning team. Les was at Coventry from a young age, going up and standing the what was what? the annex there across the just a, a, literally across fifty yards away from Highfield Road, where all the young players stayed. And you know, it, it was a, it was a brilliant, fantastically run football club. What was Les Seeley like, uh, Terry? If you don't mind me asking, he was exactly the same as you'd expect him. He, he was, <laughs> and, and from the from the age of I've known Les, oh, I knew Les all practically all my life. Um, he was two or three years older than me. I used to train with my dad's Sunday morning team. There was only one team, and that was it. He was in it. Terry Herlock was in the team as well, so it had, it had its fair share of nutters in it. Yeah, he um, knew how to put it about, didn't he, Terry? Yeah, and Les <laughs> sounds Les like was, a perfect Sunday league time. <laughs> yeah, Les was a bit more volatile, so Les would, if someone had a go at him, two fingers went up, and we the game would be in play over at Wanstead Flats, Hackney Marshes, and all of a sudden everyone looked round and there's no one in goal. Les is throwing his gloves off and gone. Um, but he, he and and of course, you know, he was a. I, I really do miss him. I mean, he was always a, a mentor for me in terms mm. of what I could, what I was going on in my career. I was lucky enough to score a couple of goals for Coventry against him at Luton, and I was actually renting his house. And Les used to come up, click the rent in cash, of course, as you'd expect from Les. And um, I plastered the the whole of his front room with photographs of me <laughs> running away, celebrating a goal with Liz on the floor, effort and blinded. Um, he was, you know, he was exactly whatever you've read about Liz Seeley, most of it is true. Bless him. Your performances were awarded with the uh, Player of the Season trophy in 1985. Describe that season more to us, Terry, and um, what was it like picking up that prodigious award? I was, it was great. I mean, I was, you know... It, Picking up a player of the award, it's only one I won at any club, is is something to, to be proud of. And it, it was, you know, I, I respected my teammates and what they did that season. The, this is the season I, I'm, where we had it. It was, it was so weird. I mean, it was, we had a illness bug with some suspensions and injuries, which led to us somehow, I don't know how the club managed to pull it off, getting three games called off and put on at the end of the season when everybody else had finished playing. I remember my friend Gary Brook, who I mentioned earlier, he had just signed for Norwich City, who had just won the Milk Cup, I think it was then. So they were going to go into Europe. Um, they were pretty safe in in terms of you know the position they were in the league. He signed for them as the season ended, so he signed for them as a club that were going to be playing in Europe and in the top division. 
because nobody expected us to be, I think it was Stoke, Luton and Everton. And we had to win all three games. This is going into June. Yeah. So everybody else has finished. We've got three games left. We've, we, we, we can't afford one slip up. Um, we have to win all three. And somehow we did. Um, we managed to, the, the great escape, the typical Coventry great escape. Mm. And then it was the year of the, I think it was Heisel disaster. English clubs were banned from Europe. So my mate Gary Brook was then signed for a club that were now relegated because Norwich went down and not in Europe. Um, so yeah. if he'd have known sort of four or five weeks earlier what was going to happen, he probably wouldn't have signed for Norwich. Um, but it was it was it was great for me to 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 get the enough of the, enough goals for us to stay up, for us to win those last three games. It was it was dramatic. I remember you know the the scenes after we beat Everton four one. I think it was at Highfield Road on a Sunday beautiful morning. day, yeah, sunny day, yeah, wasn't it? Was. They'd already won the European Cup Winners' Cup. They've won the league yeah. and yeah. lost in the FA Cup. Their last game of this, this successful season was on a Sunday morning at Highfield Road against a team fighting for their lives. So it was made easier. The circumstances certainly made it easier for us to win that last game, but the pressure was still on to, you know, to beat a, a fantastic football team. Um, but having won the first two, there was nothing was going to stop us for the last one. So it was, it was, you know, a memorable day. I still remember it fondly. Again, you didn't sleep for two weeks because you were worried about the first game, worried about the second game. And then we suddenly thought we can do this. Um, and we managed to, to get across the line again. Yeah. Stuart Pearce played in that game, didn't he against Everton? And obviously he played with Stuart Pearce. What, obviously what was he like? Um, obviously as a player and as a lad. Well, uh, Stuart, I, I kind of, he turned up from nowhere. Yeah. And, and we have to say with Bob, Bobby had a, a, a real knack. He did it Wimbledon, uh, Coventry, and he did it again at Wimbledon, buying, buying players from lower leagues, non-leagues, mm. and making them into, or the, you know, seeing the potential there. And Stuart probably turned up, I'm guessing it was on a, thir- I think he must have signed on the Thursday, because he trained on the Friday morning, and he, we saw he, this skinny kid, he was skinny, I mean, he was a Londoner, so I kind of, you know, tried to make him feel welcome, yeah. he put on a pair of Puma King boots, and then had to take them up with black gaffer tape because they was old, split, not fit for purpose. And <laughs> I see a few of the players looking around the changing room thinking, Jesus, what's Gordie done here? <laughs> and and Gordie, we trained, and Gordie named him in the team um, to play against QPR the next day. And eyebrows were raised that, you know, we didn't know his name. You know, we introduced ourselves to him. We did, you know, it must have been difficult for him. Um and he had the best debut I'd ever seen and have seen since against QPR. And he just never looked back. Um, he put on weight, um, got stronger, got more physical, um, packed up the electrician job that he was doing mm. in London that he continued to do in Coventry because, you know, he, like most of us at, at that time, we, we weren't earning big money. And Stuart used to go around the players' houses doing electrical works, in a in a deal to get us steak and chips dinner, <laughs> so, so, nice. so you can see he did a lot of electrician work, electrical works. In turn, then got lots of steak, and now look at the size of him. You know his uh-huh. legs were as big as anybody else's in the division, but he was sharing a flat with Dave Bamber. Um, between them, they didn't have two pennies to rub together. So any food that went <laughs> their way, 
um, was was gratefully accepted. So Stuart at that time put a couple of lights up on the, on the ceiling for me, um, and he did it with all the players. And it, you know, two or three nights of the week, he was eating steak and chips around someone else's house. But he he was brilliant. I still keep in, in touch with with Stuart, and spoke to him recently. And it, it's you know the the it's like we you just continue where you left off when when he first came to the club. It's uh, no, he's a good friend and and turned out to have a unbelievable career but who'd have thought Wildstone Gordy tells the story that he went to watch him Wildstone knew that Bobby was going to watch and Gordy left after 20 minutes Wildstone were desperate for the money Stuart was desperate for the move to the first division team um, and Gordy left after 20 minutes and Wildstone thought that was it the, oh, yeah. you know, he's blowing it and the next morning Bob bought him and they said what did it and and Bob said he, his first tackle the Winger, the right winger, went over the barrier and landed in Bobby Gould's wife's lap. <laughs> Not convinced that's true, but I, I, I could see it. I could see it being, but it's something like that. Sometimes, in, you know, you, I've done a lot of scouting. It can take you 10 minutes to spot a talent. And I think, you know, sometimes people look too far. They look for too many faults. If you continue to watch time and time again, you will find those faults. Yeah. But I think the instinct to find a player, Bob's was was absolutely fantastic. He did it in 20 minutes. It's all he needed. So why stay and watch the rest of the game when he'd made his mind up? You're listening to Sky Blues Extra. Now, we heard at the start of the episode that memorable fixture with Liverpool where you scored three goals. How much do you remember of that game? And did you keep any sort of momentums after the game? I've got the ball. I've got the match ball. Um, I was going to say. I, yeah, I can't believe we played with a ball that bad. Um, it's like concrete now. Um, it's uh, the the quality of the ball. Today's Premier League players would look at that ball and think, and I thought the ones before us were bad, you know, ones with the laces in and stuff like that. But this this lever ball, might have Minerva I've got, um, it's not the best, um, but it's signed by the Liverpool players. I foolishly, you know, I mean, they were a brilliant team, Liverpool yeah. at that time. It's the first time I'd ever played against Liverpool. It was probably the first time a lot of us had played against Liverpool, I'm guessing so. Um, it was probably the first time that season we were on match of the day because there was only two, ever two games on match of the day, not even the highlights from the other games. Um, and we were featured primarily because it was Liverpool, not because of us. Um, and we managed to, to race into an early lead and continue to score. And it was, a, you know, for me, it was a, it was a dream day to, to, to get the hat-trick. And foolishly, after the game, I asked Sammy Lee, who seemed a nice bloke and is a nice bloke, <laughs> if, if he could take the match ball in to be signed by the Liverpool players. And he is a nice bloke, so he took it. And I was waiting patiently outside. I went to that game in, in my wedding suit. I'd got married in because, you know, as I said, it, you didn't have a lot of money then to go wasting on clothes. So I remember looking at the, the recording on Match of the Day, me being interviewed in, practically in the stuff that I'd got married in six months <laughs> before and, and with this dodgy tash and a perm. Got the ball in my hand in that. And I'm waiting outside the change room, young, young player. And all of a sudden the door opened and someone booted the ball right down the corridor. It went flying down the tunnel. There I'm <laughs> off chasing the ball to get it back. And I studied the autographs that were signed. I kind of had an idea what, uh, what number it stopped. And I did find out it was Graham Souness. So it was. I, I saw the numbers. I thought mm, that number. I can't remember what the numbers were, but it was like five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, tens missing before it got to ten and eleven. And I think it was something like that. And it was. I kind of worked out possibly it was Graham Souness. And I've I've asked him since, and it was 
Yeah. And he said, what was you thinking? <laughs> sending a ball in for us to sign. No one scored a hat-trick against us. And he said yeah. that no one beat us 4-1. And he said, I can't believe you sent it in. I went, well, I was only 20. Yeah. <laughs> I was young, naive. Um, so I think I got Ian Rush's autograph, Craig Johnston's, Sammy Lee's, one or two others, but it stopped to grab Souness. We enjoy, obviously, on our Twitter page, a, a lot of reminiscing of Highfield Road. I know you've touched on it earlier about how good and how up-to-date the stadium was. What memories do you have playing at Highfield Road and what made it so special for you, Terry? It was the warmth for the supporters. I mean, it, it, it helped that our first game was away at mm. Watford. A whole group of new players at Mickey Jim, for instance, we didn't. Mickey didn't. Mickey Jim didn't even travel with us to Watford. He'd not signed. We got to Watford at twelve o'clock for our tea and toast and chicken and beans or fillet steak and beans. And Bobby introduced him to the rest of the the players. This is our new. This is our new midfield player, Mickey Jim. One or two knew of him because they played against him when he was playing for Peterborough. None of you know, I didn't know Mickey Jim was. Some of the others didn't know Mickey Jim was, and he played that afternoon. I mean, he, it, that was what it was like at that time. We had, I think, about 11 new players sign, and 11 new players were staying in the same hotel near Walsgrave Hospital. Okay. I'm not sure what the yeah. name of the road is. It was the, it was a, I can't remember, post house. It was a post house near Walsgrave mm. Hospital. I remember the hospital because my daughter was born there. And all, the, all 11 of us were staying in that hotel. So it was like, a, you know, when you go away for an away match on the Friday night, you have dinner together. We were doing that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, <laughs> every night of the week. It's a good you way know? for team bonding. It, it was. And, and, and the first game was at Watford away. And as I said, Mickey Jin turned up. Raddy Ramovich turned up during the week. He was our goalkeeper for the, he was going to be the goalkeeper for that season. Trevor Peake came in. Stuart Pearce came in later in the season. Mickey Adams joined at the same time as me. Dave Bennett joined at the same time as me. There's, there's more. I mean, I'm off the, these are off the top of my head. And, and we all just were thrown together at the weekend. So we got out of our system and we got a win. So we were obviously, you know, supporters were unhappy with the old players leaving en masse. Mm. But were, were boosted by the fact that, you know, this... These, you know, players from Tottenham Reserves and lower league players had combined to get the opening game of the season one at Watford. And, and you know, I think that for the first game of the season, I can't remember who it was against, that they, they were looking forward to, to seeing a new team and, you know, to get amongst the goals and get the winner in the, the, the game against Watford or scored one of the goals. And then, you know, to, to go and play at Coventry and get off to a goal-scoring start at Highfield Road, it was... It was a fabulous place to, to play football. It, it really was. And as I say, primarily it was down. It was a lovely stadium, nice facilities, but primarily it was because of the, you know, the warmth for the supporters and the, the relationship that, that I, you know, I can speak of that I, I had with the, the, the fans. Don Mackay took over the role during your time there. What was he like as a manager and what was he like to play for? It was, it was fine, Don. I mean, it was it country at that time. It was it was kind of a weird club. I, I have to be honest. I found it hard to settle because we wasn't far enough away from London. So, and there was a whole group of Londoners. There was a whole group from the northwest, and and whenever we had a day off, everybody just split and went in different directions. 
So it, it kind of, I'd like to, to have been an hour away, further away from London. So I wouldn't have rushed home. Me and my wife wouldn't have rushed back to, you know, to London at every opportunity. A day yeah. off on a, a Wednesday meant Tuesday afternoon, back down to London, stay with the in-laws, travel back up Thursday morning for training. Half a dozen of us used to meet at Watford Gap for breakfast, services for breakfast before moving on down to Brighton. Benno and Dave Bamber were from the Northwest. Ashley Grimes was another one. Um, Sam Allardyce. No one was based in Coventry, so it was it was it was kind of the the spirit was sort of it was hard to bond. Yeah. We had you know lots of new players. In my time there, I was there two and a half seasons. We went through three chairmen. Yeah. Um, Bob Bobby got the sack. Um, Don McKay was his assistant. He took over, and it, it kind of the only thing I would say about that time at Coventry was everybody kind of wasn't sure how long anyone was going to be there. Mm. You know, it was no one wanted, no one joined Coventry for it to be a stepping stone or a stopgap. But it always felt that the club were moving things around, different managers, different chairmen, players coming and going. Stuart Pearce was sold pretty quick. Ian Butterworth went with him to Nottingham Forest. So it's always difficult for a manager. But I, I, I did have one issue with, with Don. Those three games I referred to earlier, the first one was at Stoke. It was a midweek match. And he called me into a separate room at the hotel where we were, we were having pre-match meal and, and said to me that the, the, the club had decided to basically cash in and sell me. Um, this was an hour, two hours before the first of the three games we had to win. And and I was surprised. that I, When I was called to speak to him, I thought I was going to be dropped. Um, when I went back to see the players, they said, what's happened? Are you, have you been trapped or I said, no, I'm being sold. I know yeah. it, was a, it was a poor choice to make because it, it confused me. I assumed they probably didn't think we were going to win all three games and stay up. That's my only, yeah. the only thing I can take from it. Then when we won the three games and stayed up, Don denied saying it, um, which left my head all over the place. You know, so I at that stage I, I wasn't thinking of getting away from Coventry. I was thinking of winning the last three games or at least winning that one at Stoke to to, to give us a chance. So it it. it did cause from then on. I, I we did have some one or two issues, um, but nice guy did a good job at Coventry, and you know it was, you know it was, a, it was just as I say, Coventry at that time was a club where everyone was sort of, you know Sam Allardyce came in in my first year, he'd gone by the second. Brian Kilcline came in, Stuart Pearce signed, and when um, there was a lots of players, Ashley Grimes come and went. I various different strike partners. I started off with. Dave Bamber and Bob Latchford and Bob Latchford went and I even played a friendly with Charlie George. I think we played Zimbabwe in a yeah, friendly. I, did, uh, I was doing some digging research and saw that. I think it was a part of a, some sort of, and then they came back to Coventry. I think there was a pre-season, wasn't there, in Zimbabwe? Yeah. Uh, yep, I wasn't involved in that, but I can remember playing against them at home. Charlie was never going to work um, because he was at Arsenal with Bob, keeping Bob out of the team. So Bob was then trying to tell Charlie what he wanted, where he was going wrong. And, <laughs> and you can imagine, and Charlie George, he, classic Cockney, um, and he said in front of the lads, he said, what are you tell, talking about, Gould? He said, when you used to have a shot of goal, all the North Bank used to turn their back and duck. <laughs> so Bob, Bob was never going to be able to put up with, you know, one of his old teammates. 
Um, he used to keep him out of the team at Arsenal, then being told what to do by Bob. So, but it was, it was, there was a lot of change, you know, a lot of changes. Oggy came in the second season. Um, Radio Vramovic started the first in goal, ended up with Perry Suckling in goal when things were going all against us in the latter stages of that season. Perry was 17. Oggy came in the second season. It never appeared that anybody was going to be staying there for too long. So it must have been hard for a manager to, to, to deal with those circumstances that the Coventry unfortunately at that time were a selling club in a minute Stuart started doing well Nottingham Forest took him mm-hmm. um, and Ian Butterworth and I remember how that happened we used to have to park in the street outside Highfield Road so you had to get there early and to get a car park space and as <laughs> and as Stuart was walking up the road um, one of the coaching staff from Nottingham Forest um, tapped him up walking up the road to a game at Highfield Road <laughs> And Stuart came in and said, I've just been tapped up. And Ian Butworth went, so have I. <laughs> so was, there, there were scouts waiting in the road outside, waiting for players to park up, to tap them up, to go to, <laughs> to their clubs. So that's how Stuart and Ian Butworth ended up going to Nottingham Forest. So they literally now before kickoff, they've been tapped up and they know that, you know, would you fancy coming to Nottingham Forest? At that time, Forest were, were, were flying. Mm. Um, yeah, of course we would. Um, and then let's go and play for Coventry for the next couple of hours. Um, yeah, so it was, a, it was a, it was a, it was a, a, a club that always, in the time I was there, appeared to be in sort of transition. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Picture the scene. All of your mates around, you've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Yeah, because like you said, it, it seemed to be. Is that Do you put that down to, because obviously the three seasons, two and a half seasons you were there, Terry, we, you fought near and obviously relegation battles towards the lower regions of the league. Like you said, do you think that's because of the unstableness of the pitch and with the chairmans? Because you obviously mentioned earlier there was three chairmans when you were there. So do you think that was more of it off the pitch that affected on the pitch? Yeah, I think from a, a from our point of view, no one was aware of what contracts were going to be knocking about. You know, it mm. was, you know, if someone would say one manager or one chairman would say we, we, we're going to offer you a new deal to extend your contract, then before you knew it, that chairman had gone and the, the manager had gone, and 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 nobody was it. Nobody ever. I, I might be wrong, but I think that the vibe I got was that all of us thought we was only going to be there a short while. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it was Jerry Daly and Steve Hunt, who were the, the more experienced players, um, you know, great players to play with. Mm. Harry Roberts was probably the only one that was never going to leave. As it turned out, thankfully, Peaky stayed and, and Ginny stayed and Dave Bennett stayed mm. for a long period of time. But that first year or two, we all, we, none of us were sure who was going to be there from, from one day to the next. And this, bearing in mind, we didn't have the transfer windows then. There was only one at, in March. 
So mm-hmm. up until March of those two seasons, everybody was always available because yeah. there was no no long term <laughs> plan from the club. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Even like in like the late nineties when you know we had a good team in the Premier League with people like you know Dion Dublin, Darren Huckabee, people like that. They always seemed to stay for a couple of seasons. And then they used to go, didn't they? But you think to yourself, if if the club had a bit more staying power and a bit more ambition and tried to keep these players, they could achieve a lot more than what we have. Yeah, and, and you know we can say that in hindsight, seeing what's happened, you know, mm. to Coventry since then. But I think as of long course. as everything's done within the budgets and and stuff like that. Listen, if you've got a player who's got a three year contract. And he comes in, in, say in my case, for instance, and in his first year he gets yeah. 19 goals. Give him another contract, give him a, a, a bit of a raise and put another couple of years on the contract. Yeah. And that player will probably think, yeah, why not? You know, I've got exactly. another two years left. Mm. I may as well earn the extra bit of money and stay, you know, stay for longer. The club want me to stay. They, You might then see a teammate of yours get rewarded in the same way. And you start to then think... Oh, well, you know, we, we're going places. It filters down, players. doesn't it, Harry, into the dressing room? That totally. Kind of thing. I mean, yeah. I, I joked about Ian Butterworth and Stuart Pearce. Pearce, he was there five minutes and you look around and you think, well, mm. you know, that's that's one gone. Who's who's next? Who's going to be sold next? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it does does filter down. But I think, you know, in, in time, thankfully, you know, as I said, the, the players I mentioned that were part of the cup team that, that won the FA Cup stayed longer um, and longer in, in, in most cases. So Yeah, they did. Yep, no, there was there was there was great servants, but my two and a half years at the club, everybody was always expecting either in the summer or in that transfer win transfer deadline day in March to possibly be be on their way. Yeah, and you mentioned there some of the eighty seven cup winners. Obviously, during your time at Coventry, you played with a lot of those: Oggie, Gin, Peak. Bennett, but it'd be great, yeah, to learn a little bit more about the teammates that you played with. Um, sort of kicking off with the most talented. Is is there someone that you just from from right off the start you just thought this this guy is something else? I think it'd be fair to say Stuart Pierce had the most success as an individual than he with his England games and his status in 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 football uh, from what he achieved. I mentioned Dave Bennett in terms of you know how good he was for me personally. I loved as a young player playing with the likes of Steve Hunt, Harry Roberts, Jerry Daly, Bob Latchford, Kenny Hibbert, Martin Joel. You know, to as a young player to play with experienced players that were all good characters, all great to get on with. They're always trying to help younger ones. Oggy was a fantastic goalkeeper, but you know there was one player in two and a half seasons at Coventry that I played with pretty much every game. Never made a mistake, was never at fault for a goal, um, and that was Trevor Peake. Peake, was a 8 out of 10 every week. So underrated. It was it was incredible, unbelievable. Coventry did well. I think Peake was quite old when he came to Coventry from Lincoln, I think they yeah. bought him from. Um, he'd been a player at Nuneaton. He was local as yeah. well. And, you know, if it, I think if Peaky had been two or three years younger, then, you know, another club in the top division would have snapped him up or because he was faultless, honestly, for two and a half seasons. He was one of the best centre-backs I've ever played with. And that includes, the, you know, the ones at Spurs and the, the likes of Paul McGrath and people like that at Man United. Um, Peaky was, was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you mentioned there and be about from Nuneaton actually, and um, yeah, I've eaten relative. One of my relatives went to school. I think it was in the same class as, as uh, Peaky. So uh, yeah, he was definitely a local lad. We used to call Nuneaton the Apple. 
right. in New York. Speaker <laughs> was there. Kirk Stevens came from there as well. I, I think, think it's Stuart Pierce. Stuart Pierce used to end up. I think he ended up staying there as well. And we used. They used to refer to as you heading back to the apple, and it was none eaten. <laughs> <laughs> And also during your time, Terry, who were you sort of closest to out of that sort of team, bunch of, of, of players? Do you know, that, that's a tough one because we, we really did get on well. Um, I would possibly go with Mickey Jin. We were crimes, um, a little duo in terms of up to getting up to mischief. Um, Ginny had an incredible sense of humour that nobody understood. He, for about three months when he joined the club, he barely said a word. We couldn't believe he was like you, someone you wound up before a game and off he went and didn't stop running for 90 minutes. We was amazed with his energy. And for three months, he had us, he kidded onto us that he never slept at night. He slept, he stayed awake all night and slept all day apart from when he was at training. And, and some of us were thinking, well, it's, it's, this might work if Ginny does it. And, you know, he's as energetic as he is. Um, that was his type of sense of humor. I remember going to Sweden on a pre-season tour and Bob offering to buy everybody around. Some of the lads had, had beers, some had soft drinks. And Ginny asked for a brandy and Coke. And Gordy said, do what? He said, do you realize how expensive drink? Tell <laughs> Ginny, does he realize how expensive a brandy and Coke is in Sweden? And Ginny said, oh, I'll just have a brandy then. <laughs> and Ginny trains one day with his hood up on his waterproof jacket we had to bring our own waterproof training kit in that's how ridiculous it is when you think back now you you, you went out yeah. and bought like we were sponsored by Umbro so, you know Ginny or me whoever bought you, you just went out and bought one you fancied because there was no waterproof training tops so you could be running around in a Man United waterproof training top or an Adidas <laughs> one. And Ginny had the hood up and he had his headphones underneath um, when Don Mackay was manager. And we knew Don Mackay didn't. And he was trying to talk or shout to Ginny and Ginny couldn't hear a word. He just, we were doing laps around the pitch and Ginny had his, his headphones. So Ginny was, you know, he was good fun. Us two used to pick on Oggy, um, <laughs> play pra- practical jokes on Oggy. He was our favourite target. And so, yeah, so Ginny was good fun, but they were all great. I mean, as I said, the older players helped the new players when we arrived and the young players in a lot of cases. And, you know, it, everybody was, was, was great to, to get on with and, and play alongside. What was, uh, obviously, Big C like, so Regis? It was just so cool. I mean, it, it was, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> as you'd expect. I mean, his, his mate, he was always knocking about. There was, we had a good social life at Coventry at the time. There was... Various players used to have, Kirk Stevens in particular, used to have house parties and somehow Cyril would turn up with Laurie Cunningham. And I was lucky enough enough to play with Laurie at Wimbledon in the cup final. Mm. Laurie came on as a sub in that match. And when him and Cyril were together, it was, you know, keep out of their way. It was their best dressed, the coolest couple of dudes in the room by a million miles. Um, So, yeah, Cyril was, was, you know, Fantastic guy. Was there much of like a Tuesday club, Terry? No, 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 it wasn't. No, 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 no nothing. As I, as I said, a lot of us disappeared as soon as yeah. we got a day off. Mm. Um, if there was, it was very small. It was, you know, the local ones, but nothing major. I think the big event of the year would be the PFA dinner. Um, yeah. Sort of the boys from the Midlands from, and up north would travel down to London. Mm. We were, you know, the Londoners weren't particularly bothered. We were 
down in London all the time. But so there was a lot of organising um, for the Jolly Boys out in down to the PFA do once a year in in London. Um, no, it was it wasn't a heavy drinking culture. It was you know far from it, but it was you know a great bunch of lads to work with. And and obviously you you, you talked about Cyril. Mm. He was you know just superb to to, to play alongside and to. You know, to be in a change room every day with him, he was a he was a great guy. Who was the uh, best trainer and worst trainer? I I will take the worst one. <laughs> okay. And the worst, the best probably would have been. I thought about this, Lloyd McGrath, pain in the ass to train alongside and train against. He used to like a tackle, didn't he? Oh, just like he did on a match, yeah. which is great. <laughs> but you don't need people. that. Yeah, you don't need that Monday or Friday. So I try. <laughs> we called him the rash. And he was all over you every day. And he was, you know, every single minute, he was so intense. Um, barely spoke to anyone, barely said a word, but just let his football do the talking. And, uh, you know, I was quite pleased if I could keep away from Lloyd um, from a Monday to Friday. Everybody else was much, much the same. I tried to save myself for the weekends. It was the sharpest I ever felt throughout my career. So the training suited me. It did get easier as, as the week went on, as opposed to, for instance, when I was with Bob again at Wimbledon, I was knackered some Saturday mornings. Training was so hard during the week, so physical, um, that I wasn't at my sharpest. But at, at Coventry, the, the training you know, suited me down to a tee. And I think the managers knew that if I did sort of tail off a bit towards the end of the week and then sharpen up on Friday morning, it suited me to be sharp and, and ready and fit you know, for action on Saturday. Um, so I, I, I'll take Monday and Tuesday. Monday I, I was recovering. I was the stiffest footballer in the world after a game. Um, so Tuesday was a decent day for me for training. Wednesday off, and then Thursday I'd try and ease through it. And then Friday, the father side, bit of shooting practice, few sprints. Um, avoid Lloyd. Was, avoid Lloyd. Yeah, and I'd be you know ready for Saturday. So I wasn't a great trainer. And you've already mentioned obviously about some sort of. The, the cool dudes at, at the discos, but was there anyone that was like a real show off in, in the club? Because you mentioned about the contracts, they weren't the biggest or they weren't the largest. And and nowadays, obviously we see the, the players driving around in fancy cars and, and, and fancy clothes. And it's probably fair to say George Best was probably one of the original, uh, one of the original sort of David Beckham style types. But was there anyone in the Coventry change room that was a bit flashy? No, there wasn't. I mean, I think Ginny had a, an, Escort RS2000. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a new one. Um, and he was forever doing wheel spins. And, you know, if, if he, we used to joke that if Ginny was ever late for training, he was changing, the, putting his slicks on his RS2000 and changing into his wet weather tyres. That was as flash as it got in terms of a car. Peter Barnes turned up with a, a he had like a white Mercedes limo as his car. <laughs> Which was Moonlighting a, in the what, evenings, maybe. Yeah, what the hell is that? <laughs> um, no, no one was was flash. Dave Bennett is Dave Bennett. So Benno liked to, some rascal clothes. <laughs> so, um, and then when Cyril turned up, he just followed Cyril around like a little puppy dog, um, <laughs> copying everything Cyril did. So, I mean, I, it wasn't unusual. Players in the cold weather would have a swig of whiskey before kickoff. It's, I knew it at Spurs. Steve Perriman, the captain, used to shout to the kit man where's the team spirit and the bottle of <laughs> scotch would come out literally this is as you're going out the tunnel bit different um, to sniffing salts big swig of whiskey and pump the chest up and out they go and take on the world and Cyril did it at Coventry um, Cyril would exactly the same 
go for the procedure, ask George Dalton, the kit man, got the got the drink and freezing cold day, and Sue will pump punch, you know, thump his chest after having a swig of whiskey. And Benno used to put it in a little plastic cup and just like, pretend he was drinking it. We knew that if Benno drunk any of that whiskey, he was going to be in no shape to play a game of football 10 minutes later. But because Cyril was doing it, Benno did it. Now, Benno was, he was a great player for me, great character to be in the changing room. Um, but he did follow Cyril around like a, a puppy dog. You mentioned earlier you spoke, obviously, still in touch with people like Stuart Pearce. Um, is there any other former teammates you're still in touch with? No, and it's it's a source of frustration with all, all my clubs. You know, you have so many mm. good friends, and then when you do catch up from, from time to time, and, and we all say as we're getting older, the last time I saw them all was at Cyril's funeral, yeah. and we say the same things that you know we, we should get together, and and unfortunately life is too hectic, or it has been too hectic yeah. um, until now. Um, Kirk Stevens, I, I kept in touch when I was living in Spain. Kirk had a place out there, and yeah. we got in touch, and whenever he was out, we used to, to meet up and, and catch up. Um, but it is, you know, it's a, it's a source of frustration and sadness that we we don't have time to because when you see them, you know, you you the the memories are there still, mm. and you as I said, you just click straight back into teammate mode um, yeah. immediately. Um, so it is something that perhaps in these times makes you wonder that you know I should or we should um, make more time to to catch up with people than than we do so. Yeah, that's what Andy Morell mentioned. He says that obviously you can, you know, you don't see people that you played football with for a long, long time, and and then you might catch up with them or see them by chance, and you just click straight back in like you've like been seeing each other every day. It's, he said it's like that in football. It, it's exactly like that, and as I mm. say, it's a shame that we don't actually get the chance to, to get together more often. Um, but we're scattered. You, you know, you're yeah. scattered all over the place. Um, but it, as you said, that that fondness and togetherness team spirit your mates um it does immediately click back straight into gear straight away you take the mickey out the the same things you've all still got the same nicknames mm. um is you know it's it's quite unique and you know it's a uh, i had a, a lot of people at commentary that I, I do have a a lot of time for you're listening to sky blues extra you left the sky blues obviously for man U. Um, you signed for Big Ron for 650k. Um, so what was that like? Obviously signing for Big Ron, and then uh, your time at Man U, and uh, obviously your exit under Alex Ferguson. Yeah, no, it was a disaster. I can't dress it up any other way. I, I just, uh, joined the club in January with I got 14 goals that season for Coventry. I expected to go to Manchester United and and to at least get you know. A decent amount of playing time. I expected then, if I did, that I would continue to score goals for a team that was near the top of the league, as opposed to a team mm-hmm. at the bottom of the league. And it, it just never happened. I was there eighteen months. I had to wait a year before I started my first home game um, at Old Trafford. Um, yeah. By that time, I'd started three matches in the league away, and it was just you know I lost all my momentum, lost my confidence. I was now playing for a manager that didn't believe in me, didn't trust me. I was confused as to why he bought me. I could see initially why, because I was different to all the other strikers. You know, Frank Stapleton, Mark White's, uh, Mark Hughes, Norman Whiteside, were all great at playing with their back to goal, holding yeah. the ball up. 
I was the opposite. You know, I wasn't particularly great at holding the ball up because I was small. Um, but put the ball in behind, you know, you know, give it to me feet to run at defenders. And I, I, I was clearly quicker than any of them and I'd scored mm-hmm. more goals than any of them. But it, it just, I, from from day one, it was, you know, I'd signed him within a week or two. I was beginning to wonder what I'd done, the mistake that I'd made. And, and Ron never did anything to, to help recover it. So it was a, a you know, a... I, it was a move I had to make. I mean, to get the opportunity to go to Old Trafford, yeah. I actually had the chance to go back to Spurs. Um, okay. But I saw the the opportunity of Manchester United as being they were the ones that came in with a firm offer. Yeah. Um, Tottenham were reluctant to pay as much because they'd let me go cheaply mm. to, to, to Coventry, um, so they didn't want to have to spend too much to get me back. So the offer, the firm offer, was from United, and it was hard. He, he couldn't turn it down. So with reluctance, I I left a team that I was playing every week for scoring most games and um, to, to chance me luck at a club where I knew it was going to be hard to to be a, a you know a regular but I I had faith in myself that given the chance I could could do that and mm-hmm. um, when I went there they still had a chance good chance of of winning the league but that fell away pretty quickly and, and yeah I, I still didn't get an opportunity to, to play so there, there was it was you know it was frustrating and thankfully old Gordie come and rescued me eventually for Wimbledon and the season that you left Coventry, they remarkably went on to win the FA Cup. What was it like watching former t- teammates lift the trophy? What would you think? <laughs> I've got to be honest. I mean, I played for United and Coventry knocked us out. By the time the season ended, I wasn't even playing for United. I could have gone to Spurs. So that was the other team in the final. We watched <laughs> the final in Malta. We were on an end of season game for Man United and we'd had a friendly and we'd won about 10 nil, I think and I got 10 minutes at the end of this friendly um, and I'm sitting there now watching my two ex-teams yeah. one I could have gone back to and I'm now been binned at United on a regular basis never playing football and I, it, I, it was so it was tough to deal with um, and you know as I say it was I, I wasn't hoping that that you know, Coventry won or lost because they're playing against the team that I supported. But at that stage, I didn't really care about supporting a team anymore. You're just yeah. fighting for your own career and you're fighting. But it, it was kind of, it, it was strange because you're kind of watching the game in a mood. And I have to be honest, but when the game ended and you see your mates that you were mates with, you're still mates with, but your teammates with a year ago, or less yeah. than a year ago, and you're seeing Peaky, and you're seeing Killer, and you're seeing Ginny. It was then only then that I could sort of put into perspective that you know I was cheesed off that I wasn't there, of course, but I I did have the the, the fondness of looking at Ginny and pe- people like that, Greg Downs, Brian Burrows, you know there was there was Lloyd McGrath, the the players those Cyril Benno. And I couldn't help but feel anything but, you know, gladness for them that, you know, despite knocking us out, despite me not getting a game at United, <laughs> um, despite them playing Spurs and I could have been back there, it, was, you know, it wasn't it was easy, I must admit. If things had been going well for me at United, it would have been an easier watch. But to, to watch the final in the, the state of mood that I was in, where I was totally despondent, where I would have jumped at the chance of going back to Coventry, um, because by then George Curtis and John Sillett were in charge, which would have been different to, to Don Mackay as well. You could see the togetherness the team had. It was, you know, it was it was it was tough. But I, 
pretty soon when I saw them doing the lap of honour and winning it, thinking, Jesus Christ, when I was there, we were nowhere near winning anything. <laughs> you know, we, it was a result for us if we won an FA Cup game, let alone win the FA Cup. So, in, and then, of course, a year later, me and Gordy are winning it for, for Wimbledon. So it, it's certainly, you know, a, a fond couple of, you know, years in the FA Cup. So, and it's great, you know, for... I've part of folklore at Wimbledon that we won it and the likes of Peaky, Killer and, and the players I mentioned will forever be remembered, you know, as part of the, the team that won the FA Cup for, for Coventry. And after a long, lengthy careers, you know, for us all to have something that we're remembered for um, by a certain group of supporters is, is something we, we should, and I'm sure we are, all extremely proud of. Did you so, um, get sort of on the day, did you have any... You know, did you think that Coventry had a had a chance of of beating Tottenham? Obviously, they're massive underdogs. No, I thought their name was on the cup. There was a couple of instances. I'm sure there's instances of Wimbledon as well where we clumped close to going out in that game at Old Trafford. Peaky rugby tackled me two inches outside the penalty area to stop me through on goal. So if I'm if he leaves it any longer, I get in the box and it's a penalty. I had a goal disallowed where Jasper Olsen cut it back from the byline. It was two inches over the line, if it was over the line. And he cut it back and I slid it in from close range. And you just, after that, you just think, and there, there was other instances where they were behind in games and they came yeah. back at one and that spirit just drives you on. We had exactly the same mood at Wimbledon. We were down against Watford, got a player sent off. We're 1-0 down. We come back and 1-2-1. You just had this build-up and this momentum where you just think you're indestructible. And you go into games believing that, you know, you're going to win something. You're going to win your individual battle. You're going to win the next round. You're going to win the final. So once they knocked us out, um, I, I could sense from the players that they genuinely believed that they could go all the way. And, you know, it certainly wasn't the case a year ago. A year prior to that, when I was with Coventry, we were never thinking of winning anything. We were thinking of survival. And to see the change in the attitude of the players, the togetherness that came from the management with the players, I, I you know, I could, could see them winning. And the pressure is always on the, you know, the, the team that is expected to win. In that case, it was Spurs. Um, but Coventry, like us at Wimbledon, believed that we could, you know, pull off something special. And, you know, Coventry did. It was it was a great day for the club. As, as you say, as I said, those players will forever be remembered. We obviously you've obviously touched on obviously the Wimbledon FA Cup win. What was the uh, what was the day like uh, the FA Cup final, uh, Terry? All I can remember is because obviously I watched it when I was well I was about eight at the time. And all I can remember is it was a sunny day and the pitch was absolutely perfect in that checkered pattern. And it was just unbelievable watching it on the telly when, as a youngster. What was it like for you, obviously playing in it? It was it was emotional. I mean, I, mm. I stressful. You know, with the further we went on in the competition, you can't think of anything else. But the next round, you know, the semi final. No one wanted to lose the semi final because it, at that that stage it was the only chance you got to play at Wembley. The semi finals were on in a neutral stadium. Um, it was all about you know you couldn't lose the semi final. We got through that. Then it was it was aggro to be honest. I mean, it was the the stuff you should enjoy probably wasn't as it should have been. The players pulled of squabbles over there at Wimbledon. Probably wasn't like the case at Coventry, but there was at Wimbledon. Um, what agents wanting to get involved? Suddenly, players were looking for a transfer on the back of this cup run. So it wasn't plain sailing. That's that's for sure. I had. Um, 
a hernia operation earlier in the season. And on my return, the other side went. And we decided, Bob, me and Bob decided that I would just play games for the rest of the season. So this is probably March onwards. Mm. So instead of having surgery again, I would just continue to play until we got knocked out of the, the FA Cup. And of course, it went all the way through to the final. And I had surgery on the Tuesday after the Cup final. The, the Monday night before the Cup final, I, I'm pretty sure I broke my metatarsal in a match at Man United. I had to come off after 20 minutes. I scored in scoring. I kicked shot and Paul McGrath came in late and I kicked the bottom of his boot. I couldn't get a shoe on for the rest of the week. And also I had a, a strained medial knee ligament, so I was wearing a strap in on that. So uh, for me, it was stressful because I wasn't sure I was going to be fit. And mm. I had to lie through my teeth um, to, to convince Bob that I was fit to play. Yeah, I got away with it because I barely touched the ball and I just had to run around marking Alan Hansen for 90 minutes. Um, that was my job, man-to-man marker, a centre-back. It was the only time <laughs> in my career I'd ever done it. It was a plan by Bob and Don Howe. We knew how Liverpool played, the importance of Alan Hansen coming out the back and into midfield, getting it wide to John Barnes. And from then on, they could cause havoc. So we had to stop him doing that. My job was to stop him coming out the back um, and make life difficult for him. So as it happens, I could have played in trainers that day, running shoes, because that's all I did. No one passed to me. I never received one pass. Um, It was just literally running around. And we all made sacrifices. Um, but it was a day, weirdly enough, that we expected a game we expected to win, despite them being a great Liverpool team. They'd won the league. Everybody thought they were going to win. Everybody wanted them to win. Nobody wanted us to win. A lot of people say, you know, we normally underdogs, people want them to win, but we were disliked by everybody else in the country. I remember the headlines were one newspaper on the Saturday morning for the good of football. Liverpool, please, you know, thrash the hell out of this mob. <laughs> Um, and that was pretty much the feeling. So it was us against the world, to be honest. Um, but we believed. We trained for three hours from three o'clock on Friday afternoon till 10 past six on Friday evening. We had a three-hour, <laughs> ten-minute training session going through this meticulous plan of how we were going to stop Liverpool and an hour and a half at least on set pieces. And Could the, be the master tactician. Yeah, no, it, Don, it, it was Don. Don was, the, <laughs> Don, Don, out, Don, yeah. Yeah. Don, yeah. Don was the, the main one. And it was designed that we train at three till gone six to keep us occupied rather than us hanging around and going to, a, you know, causing havoc in a posh hotel in Wimbledon Village. It was designed to, you know, keep our minds occupied rather than getting nervous. Mm. And, and, it, and it worked. But as I say, that was not unusual. Three hours, ten minutes was. But the, the amount of preparation we put into games... A lot is talked about the the general sort of image of the the crazy gang, um, but they, you know, there was two or three players that enhanced that 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 thrived on that image. Um, but the rest of us, you know, the rest of the players were, were really good, hardworking, you know, dependable professionals, some really good young players that went on to great careers. But the day itself was, I found, really emotional, a relief when we we did win it. And, you know, it's something I, you know, same as the Coventry lads can look back on and, uh, you know, we had decent, you know, careers in terms of the length of our careers. And it's, you know, so I imagine they're, like me, thankful that we have actually, you know, got a trophy at the end of it um, to say that, you know, it was was all worthwhile. 
and you touched there, Terry, on the crazy gang, which we now found out probably weren't as crazy. But yeah, I was going to ask you just how crazy were the crazy gang? Well, they were, but uh, all my clubs had elements. I, I said to you about me and Ginny taking the mickey out of Oggy and giving him stick about his clothes and chucking, you know, itching powder in his clothes and chucking ink all over his white shirt that he wore day in, day out. But it was it was ink that disappeared, and before it disappeared, he chased after us and tried to beat us both up. There was there was there was crazy, you know, it, pranks being played at all the clubs I was at. Um, but Wimbledon, with the difference with Wimbledon, it was that. Yeah, there was there was always stuff going on. Rooms being you know done in your, on the, when you went overnight on hotel trips. If you lost your key, or if you put your key down, then the, your room was going to be trashed and and stuff like that. But it, there was a there was a togetherness there, a belief that the, it was an angry angry group of players that all had something to prove, and 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 that togetherness really did you know pull you through difficult moments, games where you we had no right to think that we would beat Liverpool, but we genuinely did because we were prepared, we were fit, we were ready to work as and as hard as it would take to win that game. And so it, it, there was a, a lot of in, intelligent players there. That day, there was untapped talent that went on to have great careers elsewhere. You know, like Sir John Scales went on to play for Liverpool. We know the career Dennis Wise had. Terry Phelan went on to play for big clubs and international football. Um, so there was there was players there that were at the beginning of their careers. Andy Thorne, you know, you know, although Scalzi, Thorny, Terry Phelan, all 21 years of age. Nobody was aware of that, you know, where they were going to go, how far they were going to go in their their careers. Um, so it was it, it it's it's you know it was a, a great little squad to be involved with. Yes, it had its moments where the, the stuff did go too far, but I just remember wherever we played, having this belief and arrogance that we we could beat anybody. Um, and that's, I think, the biggest reason why, you know, Wimbledon were able to punch above their weight. I know it's an easy saying, but particularly with Wimbledon, punch above their weight in terms of, you know, the size of the club, ter- you know, ridiculously small stadium, shambolic training ground. Um, there was, uh, Gordy didn't show me the ground or the training ground when I signed for them. He took me to a nice pub in Wimbledon Village me and my wife sat us down. We had a chat. It weren't much different from my chat at Coventry where I had 15 minutes to decide. Um, no real negotiating. I certainly didn't finish a, a rich ex-professional footballer after working with Gordy twice. Um, but it, it, it is, you know, the attractions were there to sign for him to come and play first-team football again, play for the manager that believed in me. But, you know, I was the record signing at £200,000. So after I agreed to sign for Wimbledon, then he took me to Plough Lane to sign the contract. And then it wasn't until the next day that I went to the training ground and thought, Jesus Christ, what is this? You know, it was shambolic. We were training next to school lessons, you know, and the pitch next to us was, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids playing school games and stuff. We had a transport calf where truckers, lorry drivers used to pull in. It was a, it was a, a well-known in London on the A3, a well-known stop-off for lorry drivers. They used to come in and share our toilets and nobody liked going to play there. Um, nobody really enjoyed the, 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 the thrill of playing at Plough Lane. Um, but it, it certainly was a, a, a great asset for us to have that for one away game a year, my ex-teammates of mine just wanted to come and 
play at Wimbledon and walk away and be able to walk away in one piece to get back on the coach and be done with the experience of playing against Wimbledon at Player Lane once once every season. So it was it was a unique football club. Still is. I mean, it's the Coventry and Wimbledon are the two that I look at in terms of results now. Man United and Spurs don't need my support. They've got enough of that. But the the, the troubles that you know Cove have had and, and Wimbledon have had over the years. You know, certainly I have an empathy for what the supporters are going through, what they've been through, and and the the, you know, the two clubs fighting out in the same division um, is is the the league that I'm I sort of tend to focus on most this season. Yeah, coming on to that question, that was my next question actually, Terry. So obviously you still follow the Sky Blues closely. What do you think of the job uh, Mark Robbins is doing at the minute? Incredible job. Mm. I mean, I had a spell at Wimbledon where we played at Crystal Palace. It was horrible. It was the beginning and the end for the old Wimbledon. I mean, we could get 6,000 in player lane and it was it looked half decent. You know, it, was 11, it held 11,000. 6,000, it, it looked half decent. But as soon as we went to Sellers Park, the, the gates went down even lower. So we would play at Sellers Park with three or 4,000 people in there. It was soulless. And, you know, for Coventry to have to go through what they've had to go through in recent years and now playing at St Andrews. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you see the games on television. There's very few supporters in the stadium because yeah. of the situation it is. And, and you just think, you know, it's a real handicap to have to play in those circumstances. And for them to be five points clear now yeah. is incredible. I mean, mm. it's the season will be finished. It has to be. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm looking at that, the position they're in. Hopefully everyone's in good shape when we do start again and, and they pick mm. up where they left, left off. Um, but you look at the players that have <laughs> lost over the years, recent years as well. And, and, you know, what Mark Robbins is doing now with the start of football they're playing it's you know fingers crossed. I really do you know pray that Coventry are back in the, in the championship, and then one day hopefully in the not too distant future, with the you know the right investment and the right setup that they you know unbelievably could get their place back in the top flight. It's some story that one, it, Terry. It would. I mean, it 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 really would. I mean, uh, I think we have to be honest. If 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 they get it out of this, this the division this season, mm. an incredible achievement because I didn't expect yeah. that at the start of the the, the campaign. Um, it, but I expected, you know, to to be challenging, hopeful that, you know, getting in and around the playoffs. But to, yeah. to be where they are now is would be a great achievement if they go up. And then it, the the first season up, it would be a great achievement for them to survive again in the in the championship. Because, you know, the investment needs to be made. You know, it's a, a, a league now, the championship, and I don't want to speak before it's happened, but no. you do, you know, there are clubs in that division that, that do have a, a lot of money. So if they can survive in the championship and if the club can head off in the right direction off the pitch, then, you know, Coventry City could, you know, could easily be, you know, a, a Premier League football club again and hopefully in the, in the, the back in the city again. And Terry, you've talked very fondly about the memories you have at Coventry and, and Wimbledon and, and, and playing. But but after playing football, you went on to to do scout um, presenting. Um, just tell us about your life after football, and you know, give our listeners a little bit of a, a sort of update on what you're doing now. Well, I finished. I had six years at Wimbledon. Horrible ending of my time there. Falling out with manager Joe Kinnear. Falling out with the owner Sam Herman, and. 
walking away on a free transfer when Bosman first started, which wasn't very appealing to many people. And a, a 31-year-old with six years on the, on the clock playing for Wimbledon, it was it was hard to get. So I actually went for a trial, Charlton. Um, they needed to see that I was fit and well. And I ruptured my medial ligament in a pre-season friendly, which meant I was out for eight months. So that pr- practically finished my, my playing career, career off. Um, I did come back as a player coach at Barnet with Ray Clements. Um, I actually started the youth system off at Barnet. So I was training and coaching the youth team during the week, playing for the first team at the weekend. And then I went to Wickham Wanderers when Laurie Sanchez got a job as manager of Wickham. We had five, nearly six, six years there keeping them in the division. That was our first job to, to save them from relegation, which we did. We then got to the FA Cup semi-final. I think it was back in 2001, where we got beat 2-1 by Liverpool. Um, and then Laurie got the Northern Ireland job, so I went with him to Northern Ireland. Successful period. We took over a team that hadn't scored 13 games. In our first game, we got beat 4-1 by Norway, and you would have thought we, we'd won the World Cup just because we'd scored. It was, it, and I remember Laurie saying to me after the game, they're not a hard crowd to please this lot, are they? We just lost 4 <laughs> 1, but because we'd scored one goal, the first in 13 games, it was some sort of international record. People were in tears in the crowd, it was bonkers. And then we went in a small period of time, we beat England and we beat Spain um, before Laurie got called to, to go and manage Fulham, where I went with him, which was, we were there less than six months. So around that time when I was coaching Northern Ireland, I went and lived in Spain and become a scout for Man City and Bolton, um, watching La Liga games every week for Piercy and Sam Allardyce, funny enough. Um, and that led to me being poached, headhunted by Sky, who were looking for someone who knew the league, didn't realise what I was doing and knew that I knew you know enough about teams other than Real Madrid and Barcelona to, to get me through on television. And that was... Led to me being at Sky for, for 12 years. Since then, I've moved around wherever Spanish football has been. Been lucky enough to go to work for ITV. It was on 11 Sports. I did the games for them. Yeah. And now I've worked for La Liga TV, which is the new channel on the Sky platform. And that's based in Barcelona. So when the season is up and running, I go out every two or three weeks um, to spend the weekend commentating on games and, and, and analysing games in the, the studio. So... As I said, right at the beginning of the podcast, I've been able to blag my way through 40 years of staying in football. Um, so that's where I'm at the moment, um, you know, analysing the, the games in La Liga, which I've been doing now for 15, 16 years. Um, so that's my, my role now. The time has absolutely flown this evening and we've so, really covered so this much. Is a, this is a two-parter, surely. <laughs> Terry, we really appreciate you coming on the show. On behalf of the Coventry fans and the sort of thousand Sky Blues Extra podcast listeners that we have, we thank you for your contribution you made when you wore the Coventry shirt, of course, and sharing your Sky Blues story with us this evening. Now, and, and can I thank the supporters as well from the from the bottom of my heart? That there's only one Gibbo was was fantastic to hear. You know, all those years ago, I'm a, I'm a lucky guy to have been received so warmly with so much warmth. And, I, you know, thanks for having me on. It's uh, been a pleasure to chat to someone about Coventry City. I don't get the chance much down in, in London or in Barcelona to talk about Coventry anymore. So this was a, a, a smashing opportunity. 
and listeners don't forget to like share and comment on our twitter facebook and instagram pages all we need to do is use the hashtag sky blues extra podcast and that's all we've got time for this evening and we thank you for listening thanks for listening to the sky blues extra podcast days are great but there's nothing quite like playing at home the same goes for mcdonald's maximize your home ground advantage with mcdelivery order now on the mcdonald's app at participating restaurants 18 plus serving times delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonald's.com mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. Talk sport. Powered by fans.